Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. All right, folks, uh, welcome back to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, for this episode, uh, Sean and I are going to do one of the listener question and answer segments. So for those of you unfamiliar to this part of the, the show, oftentimes we get questions sent through social media, through the email, podcast at gmail.com. And we kind of compile all these questions and we try to get on know every few weeks and answer some of them for you and we do prioritize questions coming in from those who are supporting us on patreon so if you are a patreon supporter and you send us a question please include that with your question so we know to kind of put you in the appropriate spot on the list as we kind of work through some of these um so for today we're going to go through a few and the one at the top of the list is from one of our longtime patreon supporters daniel weston so thanks again, Daniel, for the support. And his question is, thanks for the podcast. I had listened to everyone, but now I, I can't keep up because it feels like a couple a week are coming out. Uh, you're right. We're doing three a week right now. So we're, we're cranking them out. Uh, great to see it becoming such a success. My question is, if someone is mostly burning fat for fuel at an effort of about 70% or lower, would they use less water than if they were more reliant on carbs? I'm asking because I have a 35, 34 mile route I want to do, but there aren't many water stops. It made me wonder. Thank you. Um, this is a, a good question and I'm not sure I have a concrete answer to it, but what I would say is uh, um, when you think of fueling, when you're fueling with something like a carbohydrate source, um, pay attention to the last part of that word, carbohydrate because carbs do bind to water, which is partly why you'll notice if you kind of start following a relatively strict ketogenic diet, you might drop a few pounds really, really quickly. And part of that is just your body isn't retaining as much water because it doesn't have that exogenous carbohydrate source to, to tie some water into, uh, which is also, if I'm not mistaken, why a lot of times people following a ketogenic diet tend to up their electrolytes or up their sodium intake to try to kind of counter out that balance a little bit. So I think the it's going to probably be an individual situation where it could depend on kind of how you enter, enter that effort. Like if you enter it well hydrated, you may need less water, but if you enter it a little under hydrated, then, you know, you're going to run into some issues probably. Uh, so it may be more of a, more of an electrolyte question as much as it is, how much water will I need? Um, and I think there's probably a lot of individual responses just kind of just based on how you, how you drink water and how you approach electrolyte consumption or salting and stuff like that too. Cause you know, when you look at people's sweat rates, they can vary quite a bit from person to person. 
And I know we've had guests on the show in the past, like Charles Washington, who said when he switched to a fully carnivore diet, he just finds that he doesn't need to take in nearly as much water when he's out doing like full marathons and things like that. So this may be something that is worth kind of just playing around with in your own training. You know, one thing I usually tell folks is these field tests tend to be more indicative of what you're going to need in any specific effort you're doing, because it's going to be as close to mimicking that effort as you're going to, you're ever going to get, which is why when I'm kind of structuring training plans for folks and structure my own training plan, I put a lot of, a lot of effort into the long run stimulus because those are kind of the ones that replicate race day the closest. And that's when I kind of decide, well, what should I be planning on needing or getting a baseline of what I think I might need. So I have at least kind of a, a general starting point. Yeah, Zach, now I should add to that. I mean, you know, we had Tim Noakes talking about that. You know, he, of course, wrote that book, Waterlog, that talks about hydration and, you know, particularly endurance athletes. And I think that, you know, you have to consider heat, humidity, you know, length of effort, intensity of effort. You know, he talked about 70% effort. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that, uh, that, you know, we have any concrete evidence showing that one fuel source more than another draws more greater water requirement you know maybe maybe there's some data on that but i'm, I'm not familiar with it if it is so i wish i could say one way or another yeah i, I agree with your approach you know you got to kind of take it individually and see what you're doing um the next question is from let's see levi levi doesn't have a last name or at least didn't provide us one but he's got a question on a bit different protein sources basically he just basically says hi sean zach if you're interested in discussing the energetic values of meats and foods, including personal anecdotes, that would be great. Why would I ask? Well, I've been using a strategic ketogenic high-fat carb backloading lifestyle for a long time now, and I include carnivorous periods to decrease inflammation and increase recovery. What you have to know is that I'm a bike messenger riding eight-plus hours a day, seven days a week, including many 12-hour-plus days. In addition, I am quite a quite well-performing trail runner, also training around 60 to 120 kilometers per week, depending on where I'm at in the season. So to get to the point, I, if I ate an entire chicken or even duck for breakfast around 9 a.m. at 2 p.m., I'm hungry, even if it was dipped in butter or goose fat. Not only hungry, but motivation goes down significantly, too. No issues with accessible physical energy levels, though. But I do not feel lost one at all. However, if it was beef, even if substantially lower in calories and probably lower in fat, my energy levels are stable. No coffee, no tea, nothing needed. I can ride my bike to work from 10 a.m. till 2200 p.m. with no interruptions. Pork stays in the middle somewhere, and I prefer uh, the red-looking muscles in pork because they are still high in fat, but I feel that it provides me with a bit, a bit deeper nutrition. On fish, I feel like starches. I ate last time all the carp from a fish soup. I mean, around 1.5 kilograms, like 1,800 kilocalories. At 12 a.m., I was already seeing, already feeling hunger only three hours afterwards. So that was 12 p.m. I tested these things regularly, so I know it's not from the glucose drop too many starches in the evening or over exercising this is regular stress to beef as much as possible works would you say the beef will be the most sustaining in between commercialized meat products if yes why would it be maybe the way fiber bonds should be actually used for proteins maybe the higher blood retention maybe more micronutrients uh, in a different more accessible from i eat organic grass-fed as there is 100 organic butcher five minutes walking from the door so basically he's saying that he performs better on beef than fish chicken or pork um you know why that is uh, I, I first of all i will say that that is a probably a pretty 
Um, not uncommon finding. I, I find that most people that do a meat-based diet seem to prefer, uh, you know, beef or, or, or other ruminant animals. And so that would thing be like, you know, I would be interested to see if you included lamb or venison or elk or something like that. I think that, I think the results would be good. And I, and I think it is probably that ruminant meat is, is a little higher in um, uh, micronutrients and other probably performance things. It's probably a little higher in creatine and uh, heme iron and, um, you know, uh, carnison and some of these other things that, that uh, potentially are uh, ergogenic. So I think, and I think, you know, and perhaps, you know, greater amounts of, you know, different, different micronutrients. So I think that's probably the main issue there. I don't know, Zach, have you got any, have you played with your protein sources and noticed a difference uh, with regard to meat or beef versus something else in, in your training? Yeah, you know, I, I I guess from a satiation standpoint, because it sounds like he's he's at least angling a little bit at this, where he feels like even in lower caloric quantities, the beef tends to be more satiating for him. Um, so I'm not sure if maybe there is something going on with that, whether that's individual or not. Uh, you know, some people feel like they're more satiated on certain foods. Other people eat that same food and be hungry right away after that. It seems like so. Um, for me personally. I mean, I feel better from a performance standpoint when I have more beef as my meat source versus some of those other ones you mentioned. Beef and eggs tend to be ones that I really like and uh, I feel really good on. Um, but in terms of me feeling more hungry sooner, I can't necessarily say I've noticed any difference. Uh, but I would, I would definitely kind of chalk this up as to, or, or put this in a category of you've, you've kind of done your homework to a degree in trying these different things and, and you're finding kind of what one thing does for you individually versus another thing, which I think is more valuable than some kind of blanket statement where it's trying to encompass as many people as possible. And then it's going to leave some people on the periphery kind of wondering why it's not working for them or it's working differently for them. And just kind of go with your intuition with that. Uh, if you're noticing, I mean, you have an incredibly active lifestyle. I've actually consulted a couple of people with lifestyle similarists where they're putting in almost really good ultra marathon training for their, their daytime job. In fact, one of the first people I ever talked to that did hundred mile races before I'd ever ran a single ultra marathon, I asked what he did to prepare for a race that long. And he said, to be honest, the best thing he has is his day job, which for him was he was a garbage man before they had mechanical arms. So he was jumping on and off the back of a, a garbage truck all day long. And he said that was the best training he had. And um, I'm sure he was burning a, a ton of energy those days. So for someone like you who's training on top of a very active job, uh, I mean, I think it's probably worth also paying attention to what what is happening to your body when you notice these things. If you're eating the beef, and you don't need as much seemingly from a from a hunger standpoint i would still pay attention to make sure you're not like you know losing losing more weight than maybe you would want to or getting getting too light in the sense that your power weight ratio is suffering and your your performance is suffering on top of it um so i'd pay attention to that as well um but yeah i think that's that's about all i have to really to add to that uh i don't know that i necessarily have a a clear answer at this. I think it's it's probably uh, an intuitive thing that you might want to continue to look into as as an individual and kind of pick whatever process is going to work for you in order to perform and feel good at the same time. 
Yeah, good stuff, Zach. I've got a – so there's two questions kind of interesting, one from a guy named Max and one from a guy named Gibson Clapthorne. They're kind of the same the same question. So I'm just going to read both of their questions and get into it because it kind of talks about going into medicine and being a doctor, and these are both – looks like these are both uh, early doctors that are, that are interested in this. So first one is from Max. It says, my question is, what is the best way to promote this dietary approach as a junior doctor? The public hospital I work at serves high carbohydrate meals to their patients as do all in Australia. Any advice would be much appreciated. Also to a point you made in a recent episode about promoting N equals many research, the current research landscape has deviated from its philosophical duty to free scientific inquiry. Jason Fung and John Anitis have written much on this topic. I think there is real value in promoting and publicizing as many case studies as possible for the low carb carnivore method introducing this message to the public consciousness uh, through these alternative avenues as you currently are doing. And then Gibson Clapthor. Hi, Dr. Baker. Wondering what your thoughts are on navigating medical training as someone who's interested in low-carbon carnivore diets. I'm a third-year medical student in the U.S., and I'm really interested in the work you've been doing. I'm also interested in surgery and considering orthopedics. I'm curious about your thoughts on practicing surgery versus focusing more on nutrition, exercise, and preventive medicine. Uh, listening to people like you and Peter Atias has me second-guessing surgery as I wouldn't want to be operating on patients who are wrecked from metabolic syndrome and don't necessarily need surgical interventions. Also interested in your thoughts on managing the hierarchy of medical training, particularly in regards to nutrition. As you know, medical students and residents can't go around telling people they should just eat some steak and do some deadlifts without <laughs> their career. Would love to hear a response here or maybe on an AMA episode. If you have time, I'm sure I'm not the only student paying attention to your work. Well, apparently you're not because there's, you know, there's two questions right in a row about medical students and, and early physicians about that. So, yeah, I mean, I think just to the general standpoint, yeah, I think the medical system, and I, I have come to call this more of the disease management industry because that's what really modern healthcare has become. You know, we have a lot of people that you know, people that come in, some of the, some people enter that system through acute illness, some enter through trauma, some enter through chronic disease or exacerbations of chronic disease. And, you know, a certain percentage of those people do receive genuine help, get better. Uh, and, you know, they I would call them a the, the good outcome. But then a large percentage of those people kind of enter that system and they really don't get better. I mean, they may they may have some sort of symptom mitigation, some you know, kind of a Band-Aid put on their thing, and then they just kind of circle back around a year later and come right back into the system with another acute exacerbation. So we clearly are uh, falling down on, on you know, delivering uh, health care. You know, I think it's disease management more than health care that we're doing. And so uh, while you're absolutely right, um, the, the environment makes it difficult. You know, there's, there's a, a complete lack uh, of medical training with regards to how nutrition impacts disease and, and particularly in the allopathic medical uh, uh, system, which is the way I train. You know, I went to it's a standard medical system. Um, so I, I do agree that case reports are going to be valuable. I know there are some physicians that are starting to look at that. I'm doing my part trying to trying to get some of this information out there and you know, gathering this data and trying to make it more accessible. Um, so, yeah, but I do think more physicians need to step up and just start start out with case reports, and, and then hopefully we can start to get more clinical trials 
uh, intervention studies, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's just people willing to do it. And more and more physicians, I think, are becoming, you know, frustrated with the prospect of just constantly treating sick people that never get better in, in the system that sort of, sort of facilitates that. Um, as far as surgery goes, I mean, you know, absolutely surgery can, can be impactful and very beneficial for many people. There are many reasons why you would do a surgery on somebody that would, would definitely help them, particularly in the acute setting. Um, but at the same time, you know, if we had a better emphasis on prevention, many, if not most surgeries would be avoided. You know, most of these surgeries, you know, these people coming for heart transplants or knee replacements, um, this is a consequence, a sequela of long-term, long-standing chronic disease. And so if we were to figure out how to, you know, minimize the chronic disease, then most of those surgeries would become unnecessary. And then we would have the true emergencies where we would have somebody that, you know, had a trauma, you know, and, and to some degrees, trauma can be a lot of people that are medically unhealthy have a higher rate of trauma. This is an interesting thing. There's a demographic of people that are involved in trauma. Many of those people have drug and alcohol problems, and those things can be associated with lifestyle. So, I mean, honestly, if we were to fix um, all this, you know, and we're in focus on prevention, we would, we would see a dramatic decrease for the need for surgeries in general. Uh, not to say that we shouldn't still have the capacity to do that for some, but, but it would certainly, it would certainly change the medical landscape. So um, it's going to take uh, not one, not two, but, you know, literally thousands upon thousands of physicians standing up and saying, hey, we're, we're just tired of this and we want to uh, we want to change the system. And, you know, I've got some ideas on what I think I want to do uh, that, that might facilitate that. But that's, you know, getting it from uh, the idea phase to implementation, execution and getting it funded are different, uh, different, uh, different problems. So it's a long term goal. Anyway, I think those are good questions. And hopefully the sort of. Uh, my answer kind of helps a little bit. Zach, you want to take Laura's question? Yeah, I mean, I'll just I'll just add to that. I mean, obviously, I'm not in a position to answer this question to any authority, but like, um, I will say that like, I, I certainly don't envy the position that any medical professional would find themselves in within our current landscape, where we're more in line with kind of putting a band aid as opposed to doing a like a you know, a lifestyle first intervention, um, you know, my, my, I guess, uh, encouragement for folks like young doctors who are finding themselves entering that world and questioning whether they're going to be asked to do something they don't necessarily believe in is, you know, look to the folks that are kind of at this point, probably swimming upstream a little bit to try to get their message heard, like Dr. Baker, um, and some of those folks who have, have, have certainly paid the price for, speaking up for what they believe in as opposed to just kind of towing the party line more or less um because it does seem like if there was ever a topic that opposing ends of the nutrition debates and battles can find alignment with it's the lifestyle first approach i mean we had dr joel khan on the show a long time ago and that was one of the first things we talked about it's like he has a very different nutritional approach than what either sean or i would advocate for but we could very much agree that lifestyle first should be the first approach. So I do think there is some, some promise in that becoming something that's a little bit more than norm. And that may create more opportunities for the new crop, new crop of doctors or doctors who want to kind of move towards that to have some opportunities in that world versus the, the standard approach that we're kind of seeing right now. Um, 
Well, I mean, that's, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, and that best of luck with, with navigating everything in that world. Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it and I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too. Cause it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift, um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter and, you know, I pulled over 700 pounds and I know when I use this big orange band, it, uh, it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel, for sure. It's a good, uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people. And I think a lot of people can use it as their primary uh, training tool, depending upon what the goals are. But I think the key I found is you've got to use it as designed. And that includes uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. it definitely gets your heart rate up, even though even things like biceps curl, I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a uh, poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. Laura Gal says, hi, Dr. Baker and Zach. I love your podcast. Please keep it coming. I have an interesting question, I hope, regarding Lyme disease and the carnivore diet. I'm hearing lately of a handful of people now that seem to have placed their Lyme disease in remission, cannot say cure yet, using the carnivore diet. My question is, what do you think might be the status of the spy, the say, spirochetes? I don't know if I'm saying that right. That'd be spirochete. Spirochetes. All right. In their various stages of life, utilizing this dietary approach. I love that people are feeling better so quickly. Are they cured? Charlene Anderson, two decades now, or even Tara of Slowdown Farm in Canada. What is your best guess, please? Thank you, and have a great day. So Lyme's disease, is the carnivore diet a potential option, I guess, is in short her question. Yeah, let me, I guess I'll just jump in here, Zach. So, I mean, the spire cake she's talking about is something called Borrelia burgdorferi, and that's the, the, the you know, pathogenic uh, agent that you get from these you know, these ticks that you get that, that cause Lyme disease. And so, I mean, the short answer is, I don't know. I mean, we don't really know. I mean, the assumption would be that, um, you know, when we are, you know, my assumption would be our immune system is, is now strengthened. And then we were able to basically deal with, with this infection. I think that's, I mean, because we're going to be exposed to all these pathogens uh, in the environment, whether it ticks, tick bites us or not. I mean, there's, there's, you're, you're exposed to thousands upon thousands of bacteria viruses every day, and most of those don't cause clinical signs of infection. And so, you know, not everybody gets bit by a tick with, with Lyme disease gets Lyme disease. And so some people, you know, it may be a, a certain, you know, uh, alignment of variables which is you know the dosage of the of the of the, of the vector the, the the immuno uh sort of uh the immunogenic state of the of the of the, the host and so 
I would suspect that diet strengthens the immune system, for lack of a better, more elegant term. Um, and I think that, that basically allows you to overcome the, the infection. And I think that probably, uh, you know, I would say that the spirochete is probably eliminated. That would be my guess. Now, again, we would have to, you know, do tires and, and you know, see what happens with these people, you know, as far as to, to prove that. But that would be my my best assumption based on, on the clinical you know, outcomes that we're seeing. Anything to add, Zach? Uh, not much other than I think I would very much agree that the, the better you can do nutritionally, the easy, like the, the more clear path you have to finding nutrition that is high quality, the better your body's going to probably be at mitigating any of the, you know, side effects of something like that. I mean, I know Lyme disease is a tough one because you don't really have a whole lot of answers with it. Um, but you know, I think when you approach nutrition as a priority and that's going to be what you eat first, then, you know, you're, you're not, you're at least not giving yourself any additional hurdles on top of what you're already dealing with. Uh, let's see who we got next. Jack Amato. Yeah. You want to, you can read that one if you want, Zach. Sure. Um, Jack says, uh, type one diabetic, my mother or his mother-in-law has type one diabetes. Her doctor recommends balanced diet with lots of carbs and vegetable oils. When she cuts down on carbs, she goes hypoglycemic, then eats a shitload of carbs to up her glucose levels, which then go through the roof. Her diet is a disaster. I'm going to meet him later this month to try to convince him to let her adjust her insulin shots to the amount of carbohydrates she takes with each meal. I know that type one diabetics can do low carb. I just need more guidance on how to pursue it with a type one diabetic. There's a lot of information about type two and pre-diabetics, but not so much on low carb carnivore and type one diabetics. Do you have any recommendations for people I should read? Um, and then this is, I think this is the same question. I just listened to the interview with Dr. James D. Nicola Antonio in the car this morning, it was a great discussion. I promptly sent a link to my sister of her daughter's 15 and after more than three years of visiting a huge number of specialists trying to find out what was wrong with her, she has been diagnosed with POTS. Unfortunately, there seems to be very little in the way of effective treatment, which may be a good thing because just throwing pharmaceuticals at problems often does more harm than good. Does low carb or carnivore help with POTS? Do you know of anyone who researches or writes about it from a low carb friendly perspective? Okay, so I guess I'll just kind of glance on these because these are kind of medical types. things. So, you know, the question about type 1 diabetes, um, there are some good resources and people, there are actually some physicians with type 1 diabetes that are managing um, that with low carb and or carnivore diets. And so one would be a guy named Troy Stapleton, who I think is a radiologist out of Australia, and he writes fairly extensively about it, so you might want to follow him. And then uh, Carrie Bielis, who is an orthopedic surgeon who is also a type 1 diabetic and managing her uh, type 1 diabetes quite effectively with also a low-carb, high-fat approach. Now, and she is more of a plant-based person, but both of those people have got some good information on that. But in general, what I'm seeing, at least in the, in the carnivore community, is a very uh, favorable uh, response to the diet with regard to uh, blood sugar management and insulin. So that is to say that most people, as they adapt to the diet, see a much re a large reduction. In fact, Stephen Hussey, who was another physician we had on our show recently, I think episode 150, we talked about that as well. So he's a type one diabetic on a carnivore diet, 
and he is also seeing extremely uh, stable blood glucoses uh, and a, a much decreased requirement for insulin boluses. So uh, I think the short answer is yes, it works well for both type 1s and type 2s. Uh, as far as POTS, POTS is concerned, and POTS is something called post postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So that what that means is when people stand up, their heart rate goes sort of very high and they can become symptomatic and have issues with, 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 uh, with that problem. And uh, we had a guest on Dr. Don Layton, who also had Ehlers-Danlos, but she also had POTS. And she saw that going on a carnivorous diet results in POTS syndrome. And so, and she's not the only one I've seen that where that has been the case. And so there probably is a dietary component for some people in that. So that, that, uh, so both of those issues, I think, do respond, or at least have responded in some people uh, with favorable results based on dietary changes. And again, what I'm most familiar with are low-carbon carnivore diets doing, doing that. Zach, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that uh, definitely check out that interview with Steven that will be out by the time this one comes out. And then we are actually having Carrie come on the show that will be a little bit after this interview comes out, but uh, maybe she'll highlight some things that are of interest to you with that. And, and like Sean said, she's more plant-based with it, but from a macronutrient standpoint, I think you could probably glean some information about what she's doing and if you choose to take on the approach of doing more animal-based with it, you can you can probably still learn a lot from what what she's seen in kind of using that keto, high-fat approach with her type one diabetes. Um, yeah, I think that's all I have for that one. Uh, do you want to do another one? Yeah, let's do one last one, and then I think it'll wrap it up. So this one's Brian Carroll. Uh, so he writes, "Hi, Sean and Zach." My question is about tooth health. In the United States, fluoride is in most public drinking water, most toothpaste, and applied heavily every six months by dentists. However, it would not have been abundant in the diets of many traditional cultures that ate a primarily meat-based diet and displayed excellent dental health. Regular cleanings and brushings are certainly not things that wild carnivorous animals do, yet they maintain excellent dental health throughout life. Are the dental practices of today misguided? Are they necessary for cavity prevention and tooth health in the same way that eating vegetables and getting lots of fiber are necessary for body health? Do you think fluoride is potentially harmful to the brain development, and do you try and avoid it? Uh, thanks, as always, for your podcast. It has helped me drop nearly 100 pounds and regain normal life, and I'm incredibly grateful for you both. Um, so I would comment, you know, first of all, uh, you are correct in that, uh, generally wild animals and arguably, well, we were, we've got pretty good evidence that humans, particularly those pre-agriculture, had very good dental health. And so uh, very much probably a lot of our dental woes are related to the modern diet, whether that's too much sugar in the diet or some other component, uh, that's probably very true. And I think many dentists would recognize that and agree with that. So I do think that some of the um, things that we do today to sort of mitigate that were things that would have been unnecessary, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 years ago. And so uh, is it all, all down the diet? I'm not sure. You know, does fluoride help prevent cavities? I think there's pretty good evidence it, it shows that it does given the current diet. Now, if we don't adopt the current diet, does that then become superfluous? Is it something that we don't know, don't use? Um, I think there's it's reasonable to make that assumption. I mean, personally, I, I use a toothpaste without fluoride currently. 
I don't have dental problems. I don't have cavities, but I, but I have a very, what I think is a, a, a dental health friendly diet, which is a meat based diet. So there probably is something like that. I think we're going to get uh, Dr. Kevin Stock on the show, who is a dentist who practices a carnivore diet. And maybe he can shed some more light on that because I'm not a dental expert by any means. But I mean, I certainly think if you look at some of the work that Weston A. Price did and others looking at, you know, indigenous populations that had excellent dental health and what their diet was, they were not consuming what we we as a, as a Western society consume today. And, and therefore, uh, much of the dental work was, I would say, is probably attributable to diet. So, Zach, any further comments? Yeah, you know, you know, dentistry is an interesting topic. I think, like, if you haven't done a lot of research yet, it would be it wouldn't be a bad idea to check out the Weston A. Price Foundation and kind of some of the stuff that they've talked about um, from a more ancestral standpoint. If that's what you're looking for, I mean, my own personal experience with dentistry, I've moved around enough the last decade or so where I've been to multiple different dentists, and I swear every time I go into a new one, the first thing they tell me is what the last one did wrong. So. <laughs> I don't know if that should necessarily incriminate dentistry in any way. It's just kind of a unique observation, I guess, on my point part. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think, Sean, you're probably spot on with like uh, this may be kind of a similar thing to when we asked uh, Sabatooth about dietary fiber. And he said, well, if the person's going to be adopting a plant based lifestyle, yeah, they should probably probably focus on some dietary fiber, but our patients at Paleo Medicina who are eating animal-based nutrition, there's not a huge uh, advantage, there's not, he, they're not noticing a big advantage or a need to introduce fiber into the diet. So possibly fluoride could be the same way, I don't know, um, where like if you follow standard American diet, it behooves you to uh, try to counteract the negative effects of that diet on your tooth health with something like fluoride. You know, personally, I use a toothpaste that doesn't have fluoride in it. I, I believe it's made by a company named Now Foods, if I'm not mistaken. You can find those uh, quite easily nowadays, I think. Um, and from the drinking water standpoint, I mean, I would just suggest listening to uh, who did we have on the podcast recently, Sean, that was talking about the drinking water. Uh, Anthony that, J. That, yes, right. Anthony J. Yeah. Um, just talking about like some of the low hanging fruit in terms of getting some of these uh, environmental toxins out of your diet that seemingly find their way into things that you wouldn't necessarily think about and you know, water filtration and things like that can maybe help uh, help with uh, the fluoride that you're getting in your tap water. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of kind of where I'm at and where I see it. But uh, I think uh, Kevin Stock will be great. That'll be fun to have him on and see what he thinks about that. Yeah, perfect. All right, Zach, I think that's good. I think that's a good another Q&A session wrapped up. Um, anything else we need to tell the listeners? Uh, you know, keep, uh, we really appreciate the patron support. It helps us keep going. Um, you know, if you want to get a question in, you want to get an answer quick, we, we, we sort of first answer our patrons and then we go to the, the general pool. Um, you know, if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, you know, we are always uh, up for, you know, putting an ad on for you guys. So, you know, send us an email with that. Anything else, Zach? No, I think I think that uh, answers it all. I'll I'll put in a quick plug. If you make a, a fluoride-free toothpaste, let us know. We'll we'll throw an ad up for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean the one I use right now is the Redmond Real Salt one. I gave that to try out. You know, That's right. I saw that they had one now. I'll have to give that a try at some point. Yep. All right, Zach. I guess we should shut this one down. All righty.
Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers Podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.